cool. Yeah? Good morning. Good to see you guys. Move my mic up just a little bit. How's that? Okay. It's good to see you. It's really good to see you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 today. Before we get started, I want to take a moment uh, to acknowledge without embarrassing people too much. Uh, so I, some of you know that last week I, I had just an awful week, uh, starting a week ago Thursday. Um, a student at the, at the uh, alternative school next door to the high school that I teach at hit my car uh, with, a, with a, she had a permit and her parents weren't with her. And uh, I got cursed out by her dad. Uh, and that was fun. And so the, that, and then the same day our HVAC went out. Um, and uh, then our lawnmower broke. And then I dropped my phone and it, it shattered. First time, 10 years of smartphones uh, completely shattered. Great week. It was a rough, it was a rough one. And um, so some of you caught word that, um, that things were a little bit tough. And... Um, there was a few of you that spearheaded, uh, and I know that there's a lot of people probably wanted to participate in this. I don't, I don't really, I don't know how it worked out. All I know is that um, you guys gave me a uh, a wad of cash uh, um, to help me pay for the things that um, had kind of, you know, financially things had gotten kind of tight there, and um, I don't even know how to talk about this. Uh, th- this is what I want to say. I want to say thank you uh, to anybody who contributed to that and, and for all of you who love me and my wife and my family. And uh, never in a million years do I expect anything from you except for you to serve the Lord. <clears throat> but the beautiful thing about a family is that families are there for one another. And I hope you know that I'm there for you, and I know that you're there for me, and um, I feel incredibly loved. And I just want to make sure that I acknowledge that this morning. I'm very grateful for you. I've never been around people like you in my entire life, and, uh, and I don't deserve you. So, I'm going to try to preach now. <laughs> okay, so let me get some control here. And uh, let's pray again. Shall we, shall we pray again? And uh, please be ready. We're going to get into Acts chapter 2 real good today. Real good. Okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for my friends. I thank you uh, for the visitors that are here that uh, I just uh, made them feel really awkward. Um, but no, I'm grateful for them. And I, and I hope that they see uh, maybe uh, your heart and um, that they would see that, that this is a family and uh, that they belong, maybe. And so, God, I just pray that you would open their minds and their hearts to the reality of the gospel this morning, that your word would be clear for everyone in this room, that we would be learning and growing as we study and look at Acts. Uh, You have so much here for us, and and I can't personally do it justice. So, God, I pray your spirit would speak through me, uh, that hearts and lives would be changed because of our time together today. Uh, I love you, and I'm grateful. for everything that you've done for me and the blessing and the hardship and um, uh, the labor. And um, I-, I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, pulpit magically appeared during prayer. I'm switching pulpits, okay? All right, you, if you don't know the story, it doesn't matter. 
this is my pulpit. I don't know what this is, though. Let's get, let's get this out of here. Okay. This is a podium. That's a pulpit. Okay. Um, so Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is, is where we're at. And so just to back up, um, Acts is this story, for those of you who haven't been here or unaware, Acts is this story uh, of the apostles, the apostles. The men who'd followed Christ, Jesus Christ, previously um, are now left alone to do the bidding of his, of his mission. Um, these are men that followed Jesus Christ for three and a half years, uh, Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And, and I know a lot of you are probably familiar with the story of Jesus. Maybe you're familiar uh, with the terms of the gospel. But I want to make sure that you understand very clearly today that these three and a half, uh, these three and a half years that these men spent with Jesus uh, were spent with them witnessing his divinity, um, seeing that he was all man and yet all God at the same time, that he was God's chosen that he was God's only son come into this world to save us from our sins. And, and there are a lot of people in this room today who probably don't uh, believe that or maybe struggle to believe that. Maybe you want to believe it, but, but you struggle to. And uh, I want you to understand that, um, and hopefully that, that today's message will reveal to you, that, uh, that all of that is true. That all of that is true. And that uh, the history's record is accurate. And um, that Christianity uh, didn't happen in a, in a vacuum, or it's not the result of like um, a cult that had the right circumstances, right? The right breeding ground, the right uh, luck, and it just kind of thrived and survived and turned into what we have today. It's not that. Um, we have a, a great body of witnesses uh, to this fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, died for our sins, and rose again. There's a, there's a great body of evidence, and the people that believe it um, believe so uh, because of evidence and uh, out of foolishness as well. And um, foolish enough to believe that, that blood, the blood of the Son of God, can wash away our sins and, and, and that we can find forgiveness in that chosen one, in the Messiah, and that we can have eternal life. So those are the, those are the terms of the gospel. And so these men believed it. And uh, you know the thing, I was talking last night to Melissa, uh, Melissa came over and, and Eva and I were sitting and we were talking, and uh, cults have always fascinated me. Is anybody else fascinated by cults? Oh, come on. It's interesting. The documentaries are interesting. It's, it's weird. It's bizarre. But you know, the thing about the, the apostles is that, is that these men followed uh, Jesus Christ who had died. And um, the thing about most cults is that they're centered around an individual figure that is usually living. And when that figure dies, oftentimes that, that structure dissipates. Uh, most cults see their end when their cult leader dies. Uh, the thing about Christianity, it was born by the death of this person. Um, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Um, the people that were closest to Jesus Christ witnessed his resurrection. Uh, and it, because all of them died for the fact. See, the thing about most cults is that there's usually a, a body of entrusted individuals that circle around a cult leader, right? And uh, when that cult leader fails, the structure fails almost immediately. So Jesus dies, and yet Christianity is born. Is born at the resurrection of, of the man, God, okay? And, and, and it is its greatest strength, is the resurrection of of its leader. 
is the greatest strength. And if Jesus Christ hadn't risen from the dead, these 12 apostles, uh, 11 of which gave their lives for Jesus Christ's name, uh, they would have never done what they did. That's just true. And the, the thing about the story of Acts is, we're, we're just beginning this story, is that these men are beginning to realize what it's going to cost them to follow Jesus. We're just, in our story, in our narrative, these men are just now realizing, after the three and a half years, after the 40 days with Christ in his resurrected state, they're just now realizing what it's going to cost them. And Jesus had bid them, as he left them, uh, to go to Jerusalem and wait on the power of his Holy Spirit to come upon them, that they might be empowered to do the work of witnessing the gospel to the entire world. So he gives them this great commission. I don't know, some of you probably aren't familiar with the great commission. But he tells them, look, I am leaving, and I'm going to empower you with my spirit. Now listen, here's the deal. Your only responsibility for the rest of your days, and from henceforth, is to spread the message of of my gospel, uh, my resurrection, how I defeated death, and how people, if they put their faith in me, can have eternal life. I want you to take that message to every individual in the world. Good luck. Okay? That's, that's what he tells them. And he said, like, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to send you my spirit. I want you to go wait. And they go and they do that. And they go to Jerusalem and they wait on God's spirit to, de- to descend upon them. And we've, we've read about this. The spirit descends. It comes upon these men. They're em- empowered. They're in- enveloped. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result is that they go out into the streets and they begin to preach. They preach the gospel. Now, the thing about this is uh, they don't just preach the gospel. They they preach in in a language that isn't their own. Each of these men is empowered to speak uh, in in a language that is not their language. Okay, Uh, To speak in Gentile languages specifically. Okay, And so each of these men are given the gift of speaking in a, in a language that they were not born into or were unlearned in. And a miracle takes place where their witness goes to a multitude of individuals. See, Jerusalem uh, this, at this time was a very eclectic city. All right? It was a major metropolitan city. And there were people uh, who spoke all different languages that would gather there to do commerce. And there are people in the streets that speak all of these different languages, both Jew and Gentile, and they're hearing their language being spoken. Are you with me so far in the story? Okay. They're hearing their languages being spoken by these men. And there were Jews present as well. There were Jews who had been born into an Old Testament tradition. And they were there celebrating the Feast of Weeks, which is a traditional feast and the Jews had gathered together there to, to celebrate, to fast, to pray, to be in the temple, to worship. And they're gathered there in Jerusalem as well. And these Jews witness these men speaking the message of Jesus Christ. And they can hear them speaking in Gentile languages. And in so doing, they're shocked. They're shocked. They're in disbelief. They're in wonderment. They can't believe that these Jewish fishermen, these unlearned men, had the ability to speak in all of these different, the spectrum of languages. So first of all, it's an intellectual shock. They're saying to themselves, how could this be so that these unlearned men, men who have never studied ever, know all of these, this plethora of languages and are speaking them so eloquently? So that's the first thing. It's miraculous to them. They have to, they have to stop and consider 
The other thing that would be a, a disbelief to them is that they're speaking Gentile languages. In other words, for a Jew to hear Jewish men preaching and proclaiming a message of God in a Gentile language would have been disgusting and vile to them. And it would have been a sign to them of the judgment of God. So in this moment, Peter and the other disciples catch the attention of these Jews. They catch their attention. And Peter takes this opportunity to preach. And he turns his attention away from what's going on and the, and the message to the Gentiles, and he turns his attention back to the Jewish men and women that are gathered, and he begins to preach. And today we're going to look at the message that he preached. Okay, We're going to look at how he preached and what his approach was. And what our hope is today is two things. Okay, First of all, for the Christians that are here, for those of you who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about gospel strategy. What should a gospel message look like? Okay, that's the first thing that we're going to do. The other thing we're going to do is we're going to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I pray that when you leave today, uh, that fact will have changed. Okay? So we're going to be in verse 14. And by way of recapping, we'll start, we'll start there. All right? But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea... And all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Remember, there was a, a few of these, these Jewish men were saying, well, what, these guys are drunk. That was, the only, that was the only logic that they could come up with. And Peter points to that logic as being flawed because it's 9 a.m. And people aren't getting twisted in the street at 9 a.m. <clears throat> but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he begins to share the prophecy of Joel here. But this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on, and on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pause here for a moment and, and by way of review, this is important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. If you're interested, go back and listen to the last message. But this prophecy of Joel is super important because there's two things that are happening here. There's two things that are happening. On one hand, these men and these women are witnessing the coming of the Holy Spirit, just as is prophesied by Joel, the Spirit comes, it descends, and it empowers the followers of Jesus Christ to speak the truth of the gospel. And, and these miracles and these signs begin to take place. Okay? And so a prophecy is being fulfilled here. Okay? On the other hand, the, the prophecy is only fulfilled in part. We could all recognize that this prophecy by Joel is an end times prophecy. In other words, he's talking about the, the judgment of God coming into the world, right? Uh, the, 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 the smoke and the fire and the judgment of God's hand upon the earth. And what we recognize as we read the entirety of Acts is that those things don't come to pass in this story. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why? Well, the reason is because the Jews don't end up receiving the Messiah. In other words, the message of Joel is that when the Jewish people receive the Messiah, these things will be true. Okay, now, again, 
without getting too deep, the Jews don't receive the Messiah. They don't. They don't receive him. The nation of Israel does not turn wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ as their Savior, and there isn't a national salvation. It doesn't take place here. And so why is that important? Well, it's important. This is not just a footnote in the story, okay? I think maybe some of you would be convinced because it's kind of hard to understand. Well, it's just a footnote in the story. Why are you spending so much time here? I have to point out to you the transitionary nature of the book of Acts. I have to point this out to you. Because we're going to see a lot of really weird things happening in Acts. And there are parts of this, this, this uh, program of God reaching out to the Jews one last time. We described it like this. A train is leaving the station. This, this train is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Jesus. It's leaving the station. It's pulling out. And the Jews have missed their opportunity initially to receive. To get, you know, it's much easier to get on a train when it's not moving. Okay? You probably have not experienced that. Okay? But it's very j dangerous to move and, and, and to jump onto a moving train. It's very dangerous to do. It's much easier to have a ticket. Okay? And to board, right? Well, it's, the train is stagnant and you can get on. Okay? And, and so w what happens is that the Jews miss that opportunity. They crucify the Messiah. That was their opportunity. They crucified him. And at his resurrection, and in this moment, the train is beginning to pull out of the station, and God is giving the Jews one more opportunity to run alongside the train and try to hop on. But what we're going to see as we move through Acts is that the train actually is diverged, and we bypass a Jewish-centered gospel, okay? Only to return to that in the end times. This is what Revelation and the book of Daniel uh, speak about, Okay? And so this is important. So we have to, to understand this because it establishes the temporality of God's emphasis on the Jews. We have to understand this because it establishes the temporality of God's emphasis on the sign gifts. We have to establish this because it, because, uh, it points to the, to the temporality of God's current emphasis on the Gentiles. And we have to talk about this because it establishes the coming prophetic fulfillment that Jews will be restored. Okay, if you missed that, that's cool. Sign up for D1. starts there then take D2, and then begin studying uh, Scripture in LFBI, and all of this will, be, will fall into its proper place, and you'll begin to understand it. But we're going to keep moving, if that's all right with you. Okay. So these men are speaking. They're speaking Gentile languages. It catches the attention of the Jews, and Peter turns to them, and he preaches. Let's look at, let's look at what he says verse 22. Peter's response, his gospel message. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So the first thing that we learn about Peter's message is that it's Jesus-centered. It's focused on who Christ was. See, Peter understands that if he's to preach, he has only one thing worth preaching. Like, you guys understand, preaching just means declaration, 
right? It just means to declare something. In today's day and age, Christians are preaching all different types of things. Christians have all kinds of agendas. Perhaps you've heard them, okay? Perhaps you've heard them from the mouth of Joel Osteen, okay? Which is a prosperity-centered gospel. You name it and claim it. You are beloved by God. And because God loves you, he wants to give you all of your wildest dreams. And if you simply, if you simply commit yourself to pursuing yourself and God within you, then he will give you everything that you ever wanted. It's a false gospel. You know, many Christians today, they're proclaiming false gospels. They say that, that to, to, to know God is to experience him. And if you could simply experience the fervor of God's spirit moving inside you, it would cause you to, 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 to speak in an unknown tongue, not a Gentile tongue, an unknown tongue, okay? Completely unknowable by any human being. That you might fall out, that you might flop around. And in so doing, that experience legitimizes your faith. It's a false focus, it's a false gospel. There are many people that are preaching a social, social justice agenda. They're saying that to be a Christian, that you, that you need to give your life to making sure that every village and every country and every place has a well to drink from and food to eat. That every civil rights issue that you need to jump on board and that you need to fight that fight. And in so doing, you are showing the world God. Now many of these are are these positions are incomplete at best. They take bits of truth from what we know about who Jesus was and what he wants for humanity, and it takes those things and just tweaks them to be experientially focused, to be, to be, to be self-focused. See, Peter understood something. is The gospel had nothing to do with him and his ability. Peter understood that at the center of his message, Jesus Christ had to be there. And without the proclamation of the terms of the gospel, there was no message to preach. Let's, let's look at what he had to say. A Jewish audience would have known that, that, that Jesus of Nazareth was a real man, that he had lived and walked among him. You know, the first thing that Peter says to them is, is you know Jesus. Yeah, you know Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man approved of God. You witnessed him. You saw him living. He walked about your communities. He traveled to your community. Perhaps you saw him from afar. Perhaps you saw him up close. Perhaps you heard the testimony of him, people talking about him. You know that he lived. You know that he was here among us. They would have nodded their heads. They would have said, yes, we've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says to them, you would have known the fame of his miracles. God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. You saw his miracles. You know that he did supernatural things. Perhaps you witnessed them directly. Perhaps you heard word. But you know that he did those things. You know, the Gospels uh, give us about 48. You know, there's some debate about, uh, among some people about what a miracle, uh, what constitutes a miracle. But if we count every miracle that Jesus did, there's about 48. You know, John chapter 21 tells us that Jesus did so much in his, in his ministry on earth that if we were to spend the rest of our lives writing that down, the earth wouldn't even be able to contain what Jesus Christ did. 
as unfathom, unfathomable as that is, that's, that's what the gospels say. And, but we have, we have record ourselves of about 48 different miracles, and these people would have witnessed these miracles. They would have seen them. They would have heard about them secondhand. They know that Jesus Christ came into the world, and he had some sort of divine power. They would have known that. And, and so he reminds these Jews, and they would have nodded their head in, in assent. They would have said, yes, we recognize that. They would have known that God's power was on him. That God, that, that, that no man does such good deeds and does such miraculous things if God the Father isn't somehow anointing him to do them. They would have acknowledged that. They would have seen that as true. They would have known of his innocence and his wrongful death. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. They would have had no choice but to acknowledge the fact that the Jewish people killed Jesus, unrightfully so. That he had done nothing wrong. That he had done nothing wrong as it concerns the law. They just didn't like him. And so they killed him. And they would have had to have acknowledged that. They would have had to have acknowledged that. And now listen, this is the most important part. They would have known the rumors of his resurrection and the rumors that the disciples had stole his body. That was what was being told, is that Jesus disappeared. His body disappeared, right? And they would have heard that, well, these men that are now speaking in front of us, these men had to have stolen their body. That was the rumor that was going around. But Peter proclaims here, who, hath, who God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. In other words, Peter makes his point of emphasis. You know all of these things about Jesus, but listen to me. You, you saw him die, and we know that he resurrected. We know that he resurrected from the dead. And so here's the confrontation. Here's the thing that they would have struggled to understand. Here's the point of contention. Did Jesus Christ raised from the dead. That would have been the struggle. But Peter boldly declares it. Here's key point number one. Every gospel message should begin with the divinity of Jesus and end with the resurrection of the Messiah. There is no gospel without a resurrected Jesus Christ. If the Son of God did not defeat death, there is no gospel message to preach. So you can have whatever agenda you want. You can dilute the message as much as you want. Unless you proclaim the resurrected Christ, there is no gospel message. Mark 16, 15 says, And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But here's the deal. What gospel do you have to take to people if, the, if, if there isn't a resurrection message? What are you going to share with people? What are you going to take? Because if it's just a social justice, then you might give someone a well and you might give them bread to eat. But what good is it if their very soul is damned for eternity? You could pat yourself on the back. You could say, well done. I mean, this is, isn't this the worst part of this entitled, ethnocentric perspective on the gospel. 
is that we're somehow superheroes. The whole point of Peter's message here is that we have nothing but the message of Jesus. We have nothing to offer you except for the story of how Jesus died and rose again. That's all we have to offer you. And we'll actually touch on that again later. Peter, Peter talks about that very clearly in the book of Acts. I can't wait to preach that. Paul says uh, that without a resurrection gospel, Christianity is nothing more than a cult of personality. That's what, that's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. And if the dead rise not, then is, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You're, ye are yet in your sins. You're, you're still consumed by your own sin. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, in other words, if we just put our hope in a man, Jesus, an unresurrected Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul's point was, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then at best, Christianity is just a cult of personality. He's just a good man with a bunch of moral things to say, like many people would suppose today. And, and it's just cool to, to know and abide by some of his teachings. But there is, there is no eternal life if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead. We are still yet in our sins if Christ hasn't beat death. Does that make sense to you? So then what's our problem, Christians? Why is it that we're so fearful to speak the foolishness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why are we so timid? Here's the question for you. Does your gospel message emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ? This is a question for, for Christians. Does your gospel message emphasize a resurrected Jesus Christ? Now, now I want to ask this seriously because a lot, of us, a lot of us want to believe that we witness. But many of us aren't. Many of us aren't. You guys mind if I quote Spurgeon? I'm going to quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon addresses this need for a Christ-centered preaching by telling a story about a young preacher and an elder in a church, okay? So I'll, I'm going to read this to you. There's a story of an old minister who heard a sermon by a young man. And when he was asked by the preacher what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But at last he said, if I must tell you, I did not like it at all. There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see that Christ was in the text that I was preaching from. Oh, said the old, man, old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England, there is a road leading to London? Whenever I get hold of a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus. 
and I mean to keep on his track till I get to him. Well, said the young man, but suppose you are preaching from a text that says nothing about Christ. And this was the response of the old men. Then I will go over hedge and ditch, but what I will get at him. Here's the point. Every message that you ever preach should go to one place. That's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. What else do you have to preach? Men have many messages in this world. There's no way that we could exhaust them. It'd take an entire lifetime to study all of the messages that men have come up with, all of the things that humanity preaches. Just turn on the television. Every show is preaching. Everything is preaching. Everything is a declaration. And it's impacted Christianity, and it's distracted us from our true calling. Does your gospel message emphasize the resurrected Jesus Christ? Okay, point two. Okay, so there's three things that we're going to look at, three areas in which Peter addresses in his preaching. 25, verse 25. Peter begins talking about David. You guys are familiar with King David, right? For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, and I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt uh, make me full of joy with thy, uh, with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. Okay, so, so Peter quotes David here. Okay, this is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He's quoting the, you know, David wasn't just a, a king. He was also a prophet. Okay, he was also a prophet, and he's prophesying of Jesus, and Peter quotes him here, and he says, uh, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is, is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. In other words, what Peter's saying is, the prophet David spoke of Jesus. And you guys are a testimony, or he is a testimony to us of the reality of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Being a prophet of God, David wrote about the future Messiah that he would not remain in hell or rot in his grave. And so uh, David is speaking clearly about the resurrection Messiah to come. David presents a prophecy that, that the Messiah would overcome corruption and death. Now listen to me. This would have been a compelling point for these Jewish people that were standing nearby. Because it would have established that the rumors about Jesus might have been true. If the rumors of Jesus were true, then suddenly the, prophetics, uh, the prophetic writings and the gospel of Jesus would have been corroborated. Does that make sense? The Jews would have found themselves in conflict with the undeniable truth of the prophecy of the word of God. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place. David spoke of a Messiah that would raise from the dead. The rumors of Jesus are that he rose from the dead. What if Jesus rose from the dead? What does that mean for us? 
Now, this is what I want to talk about. You know, for many people, the gap between them and salvation is simply the doubt that the, that the world has sown into their lives, that the Bible itself is not authoritative. Okay, so this is what I mean, is that in the world today, many people, the gap between them and actually choosing to follow Jesus Christ is that throughout the years and throughout their life, people have told them that the word of God is not absolute truth. They had convinced them that it's tainted, that it was written by men. And many people stand in doubt of who Jesus is because they refuse to believe the authority of Scripture. You know, uh, um, Bryce, where's Bryce was in my class uh, a couple years ago, okay? Now, when Bryce was in my class, he, uh, when I first met him, he was a man of great doubt, okay? Very, very cynical individual, all right? And people who had classes with him, they remember that, Bryce, Okay, because he was somewhat combative, all right? Maybe he still is a little bit. I praise God he's in D1 now. But you know, at the time, uh, at the time, Bryce knew the message of the gospel. That would have been nothing new to him, right? Uh, The story of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that would have been nothing new to him. But what he had come to is a place of cynicism as it concerns the authority of God's word. And so I used God's word for after school, sometimes hours at a time, to talk about and discuss why the the Bible is true and every man is a liar. And we spent hours and hours of life doing that uh, until he came to a place where he could not deny the fact that that the Bible is true and every man's a liar. And because God used that dialogue, he's here with us right now. Praise God for that. You know, the prophetic nature of God's word is undeniable. And if people were willing to just take the time to look at what the Bible says, they would probably be freaked out. Because there's nothing like this anywhere else. There is no other religious writings or religious scriptures that come anywhere close to what we have in the Bible. You know, um, people love prophecy. Have you noticed that? Okay. People love prophecy. They love the idea of there being, you know, these like, because it's conspiratorial in nature, isn't it? Okay. Like Nostradamus. You guys familiar with Nostradamus? Okay. If you're, you don't need to know anything about him. The guy, it's ridiculous. But, but people suppose that Nostradamus had all of this prophetic insight, that he was an oracle. Okay, he's a, a French doctor from the 1500s. Now, I want you to, you know, September 11th, the anniversary just passed. You want to hear his prophecy that supposedly talks about September 11th? Here's his prophecy. Earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time. Then Arethusa will redden a new river. Okay? Now, there's documentaries devoted to this, hour-long specials on the History Channel about that. Okay, okay, listen to me. We're so interested in prophecy. But so much of prophecy sounds like delusional thinking. It's watered down. It's empty. 
In contrast, the Bible contains somewhere around 300 to 330 prophecies related to the Messiah. See, what makes the prophecies of the Scripture compelling is that they form a complete and undeniable picture of who the Messiah was supposed to be. And all of those things have come true and are coming true in Jesus Christ. It's a freak out, okay? If you took the time to really look at how precise the prophecies of Jesus are, then you would come to recognize that the, the word of God is true, that it's true, and that we have no choice but to believe it. Here's key point number, tr- number two. A compelling gospel message is ready and prepared to establish the, establish the authority of God's word. It is hot in here. Are we, sh- are we in Hades? God deliver us from the corruption of death. It is a thousand degrees in here. Is anybody else sweating? Maybe I'm coming down with something. Okay. So key point number two, a compelling gospel message is ready and prepared to establish the authority of God's word. So that leaves us with a question. Okay. Do you understand God's word enough to present the gospel with authority? That's a question that has to do with your personal knowledge of scripture. Okay. This is a challenge to you. How confident are you in your understanding of what the Bible says? Okay, so, so Christians, what I'm, what I'm asking you is to consider what does it mean for me to grow in my knowledge of God, that I might know his character, that I might know the truths of him, that I might know the doctrines that he preached, that I might know his, the prophetic nature of his word, How do I come to a greater understanding of who God is that when I speak about Jesus, I can point to the authority of God's word? Because if God's word is not authoritative, then the gospel message is is potentially corrupted. You know, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians but point to to the scriptures being corrupted. They want to believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, but they don't want to believe that Jonah was in the belly of a whale, or that God created the earth in six days. They don't want to believe those things. And to me, that's absurd. That's absurd. You want to believe that God can raise his son from the dead, but he cannot create the world in in six days. That's crazy. There's logical fallacies to that. Okay, You want to believe these moments of scripture that are favorable to you, but yet the things that seem controversial societally you want to say, well, that portion of Scripture is corrupted, or that's anecdotal, or that's a metaphor, or that is folkloric, okay? No, 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 listen to me. The Word of God is completely true from beginning to end. And if you doubt that, then you need to come every night to the Certainty Conference, okay? It'll be, it'll be projected here at MBT. You'll be able to watch it streaming. We're going to have a party. We're going to have a good time, and we're going to hang out, and we're going to listen to why The scripture has been preserved for you. That God has the ability to write a letter and preserve it. If he can raise his son from the dead, I think he can write a letter and tuck it away safely. (laughs) But yet, because we're cynics, because our gospel isn't centered on Christ anymore, because we're, we're more interested in academia 
than the passionate proclamation of Jesus Christ. We have lost sight of the foolishness of God's word and the preaching of it. We've lost sight. We've lost sight. We're deluded. So I'm calling you to learn God's word so that you might be able to point to its authority. Next, the third thing, Peter's, Peter's message speaks to the testimony of the disciples. Verse 33, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my, my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy fo foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. You know, what he's kind of saying is, uh, what David was talking about, he wasn't talking about his, himself. He was clearly talking about God's anointed. He was talking about the Messiah. Now, but listen, what I want you to, say, I want you to look at here in terms of focus. In verse 33, it says, And having received the Father, uh, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. In other words, what he's saying to them is, Look, I'm telling you about Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God. I'm pointing to the, the evidence and the proof that the, the Word of God says that the Messiah was going to come and die and, and raise again. And, and, and so we can look at David and we can look at the prophecies of old and we can look at the Torah and we can say, Look, 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 this is true. But then he says, look at us. Look, what do you see right now? What do you see happening in your midst? What do you hear and see? Because God promised that his spirit would come. And you're looking at us. And you're gawking. And you're amazed. Do you not see the power of God come into this world through his Holy Spirit? His point is, is that among his followers, do you not see the power of God? Is their witness reliable? Is it reliable? The Spirit is evidence that the authority of God is upon them. This miracle, these signs, these wonders point to their authority and the reliability of their message. Key point number three. The gospel message is proven when believers are empowered by the Spirit of God to display the love of God. And we'll see, we'll see here in just a second that the message was for them to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ that they might be saved. It was a message of love. It was a message of peace. It was a message of offering uh, eternal life. But they were empowered by the Spirit of God to display that love. And you know what? Here's the deal. Many of us fail to do that. And we're not, we're not talking about speaking in tongues. We're talking about living in the character of God. We're talking about every day, the people in your workplace, the people in your classrooms, the people that you expose yourself to, saying to themselves, that person's clearly a Christian. That person knows God. That person has power upon them. That person has joy undeniable. Why is it that that person has peace in the midst of that storm? 
How is it that that, pe that person speaks with such great authority? How is it that that person lives every day so sure? And the question is, when people look at you, do they think those things? Peter was saying, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. The evidence proves the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Can you say that about your own life? Does your life, here's the question, does your life evidence the power and love of the gospel? Can people see it? Can people hear it? I mean, that's what Peter po pointed to, didn't he? He said, see and hear. See and hear. Can people see it in your life? Can they hear it from your mouth? That the power of God resides upon you. I'm going to read verse 37 through 41. I want you to listen carefully. I know some of you are still jotting down notes. Verse 37. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Oh, the beauty of those words. Do we long to hear those words from the people that we proclaim the gospel to? If a gospel message is right, it will, it'll end in two ways. Listen to me, folks. It will end with someone rejecting you to your face, which is okay. That's not on you. Or it will result in someone saying, what shall we do? But listen to me. One thing a gospel message never does, leave people confused. A gospel message never leaves people confused. If you're preaching, a, if, if you are intentionally or accidentally preaching a false gospel, one of prosperity or one of experience or one of social justice or you fill in the blank, you know what it is. If you're preaching that, it only leaves people standing there unsure of who they are and what they're supposed to be and what eternity means and who Christ is and how salvation comes. It leaves them confused. But if the gospel is preached correctly, then people will always either reject you outright or they will say, what shall we do to be saved? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. In other words, God is still calling the Jewish people. You can still get on board. You can still run alongside that train and hop on. Let's go. Let's do it. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Hallelujah. 3,000 people coming to the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ. What a testimony. But listen to me. At the heart of that is a word spoken and a life lived. And Peter pointed very specifically to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He pointed very specifically to the authority of God's word. And he, and, he, and he lived and acted as though God's hand was upon him. And if those things are missing in your testimony, then you are in danger of failing the gospel mission. You're in danger of failing the great commission that God's called you to. Guys, today was a, this is kind of a hard word. And, I, and I'm kind of coming at you. And I'm speaking with a voice that is very much... Intense. 
I've been accused of being intense a time or two. But listen to me, what good is our life if we're wasting the gospel away? What, what is good Christian activity? What is church going? What is ministry? What is a, what is a Bible study on campus? What does that mean? If the gospel message does not control your life. This is our identity. What Peter is doing here is displaying a pattern and identity that the apostles have handed down to us. This is who we're called to be, brothers and sisters. And if this is not who you are, or if your gospel message has failed, then you need to repent. If you have been afraid, if you have been confused, then let's change that. And if you are a person who says, I've not yet received the gospel the way these, these men did and these people did in this moment, I've never received the gospel like that, then you need to take care of that now and you need to grab a hold of someone and let them show you from God's word what it means to be saved, to be delivered from corruption. Yeah? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of Peter and the apostles. God, I would just ask you, um, would you show us where we're weak? Would you show us where we fail to declare the gospel the way that you would intend it to be? Uh, would you show us where we've diluted the message? Um, Lord, have we made excuses we made excuses to preach something else. It's very vulnerable and difficult and hard to be a Christian that, that preaches the gospel. We will face a lot of rejection. Uh, people are going to treat us poorly. These men mocked. People are going to mock us. It's hard. And so we often find ourselves making excuses to, to dismiss us from the obligation of preaching what you've called us to preach. Forgive us, God. Re uh, 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 re accept our repentance and, and forgive us of the idleness of our lives. And God, for those of us uh, here today who don't know you as our Savior, God, I just pray that you would draw those people to hear and to know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he came to save them from their sins, and that he desires them more than anything, so much so that he gave his life, that he suffered great pain to draw them to himself. And so, God, I pray that they would know that drawing, that they would hear that call, and that they would receive uh, the gospel through repentance of sin and making you Lord, making you Lord of their lives. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.